Some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Heart of the Matter can be seen on live television here in Idaho and other places through streaming video at www.hotm.tv. Of course, in our archives at the same website, all over the web, especially at YouTube, and you can listen to it on AM820, The Truth. Wherever you're watching from, we welcome you. How about joining an open, never-denominational Bible study every week, God willing, Sundays from 2.30 to 3.30 at the University of Utah, we get together, we open God's Word. We started in Matthew, we went through that book, we went through John, and we are now in the book of Acts. We're in the seventh chapter, just wrapping it up, and uh, you're always welcome to come, bring a Bible. There's usually refreshments, good people. We get somewhere between 30 and 100 every, any given week. And uh, everybody kind of trying to seek uh, the Lord in their own way. Want more information? Go to calvarycampus.com. What do you do while you're driving to the Bible study? Turn on AM820, The Truth, and you can hear Heart of the Matter replayed right there on that station any Sunday afternoon. Just think about the knowledge and growth you can get by turning in and watching, uh, hearing Heart of the Matter, and then coming to Bible study. And hey, if you're out in the Salt Lake City area, check out Tea's Grill on 405 South Main Downtown. Great food, great people. Two things to email us about. First, we are looking for ministry liaisons throughout the state, actually throughout the nation. For what purpose? To match people up with you, depending on where you live. People who are thinking of joining Mormonism, people who are questioning Mormonism, people coming out of Mormonism, or they don't know where to turn. Here's the thing. We're looking for people, hopefully couples, but people who have come out of Mormonism. That's the first requisite. And they have, they have been in the Word. They're mature Christians. So that when they meet somebody who lives in their vicinity who's coming out of Mormonism, they can dialogue with them from a biblical perspective and not just from, oh, I hate Mormonism too. Yes, so, uh, you know, worship Satan or whatever people do who don't come to the Lord, you know. We want you to have that relationship with the Lord when you come out of Mormonism. And so we're looking for people who are willing to be liaisons. Now, we already have some down in Utah County. Excellent. And we're just trying to build more. We're going to give you that information as time goes along. You can email us, Sean at AlethiaMedia.com. Write representative in the subject line. And uh, if you do that, then we'll contact you as we compile the list. Secondly, we are going to do an early spring 
open water baptism tour. <coughs> Excuse me. When are we doing that? Saturday, March 19th. Now we're going to start up in Logan. We're going to go to Brigham City, come down through Ogden, hit Layton, Salt Lake City, and then hit Utah Valley. All from Saturday morning to early Saturday afternoon. We, we're doing this because we get emails from people who have come out of Mormonism. They don't necessarily want to join another church, but they do want to be baptized due to their internal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they want it to be a non-denominational baptism in a river or a, a baptismal font that churches often let us use. So if you're interested in doing that, email us, of course, early spring open water baptisms. We'll do more on that, but that's coming up on March 19th, a Saturday. Two books for your consideration. First, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. We think this book will play an important part in helping you understand our position relative to everything going on in the world today in the name of Jesus Christ. From Glenn Beck and uh, Mormonism in politics to the widespread watered-down ecumenical view many churches are taking in the name of social salvation. You can check that book out. You can get it at hotm.tv. You can also get it at Calvary Chapel Salt Lake City. And uh, you'll be able to get it at Lifeway Christian Books in the near future. Uh, second book, I Was a Born Again Mormon, available at Lifeway Christian Books, Christian Gift and Bible, Calvary Chapel Salt Lake, Utah Lighthouse Ministry, Oasis Books in Logan, Gift of Grace in Springville, Living Word Bookstore, Twin Falls, Christian Center Books, Park City, and of course online at hotm.tv. Only a few weeks left of this year's um, Operation Winter Coat for Salt Lake Rescue Mission. Join us by bringing your new and gently used winter coats here to the station TV 20 at uh, 314 South Redwood Road. And uh, just leave them in the lobby between 9 and 4 uh, p.m. Monday through Friday. They are greatly needed and appreciated. That's a lot of announcements. Let's hear from the Word of God. to Matthew Sermon on the Mount chapter 5 and we could literally spend probably a year talking about chapters 5, 6, and 7 but our purposes here are to look at what the LDS miss when reading the, the Bible or misrepresent when they teach it. Perhaps the best way to understand the Sermon on the Mount is to first ask ourselves what is Jesus trying to accomplish with these teachings? In the end, all of his words are aimed at totally convicting the reader and to show the absolute need for Jesus uh, uh, to step in and save us from our fallen selves. Many LDS people, especially their missionaries and their apologists, love to quote from the Sermon on the Mount, suggesting that the Lord said these things in order to show you what you have to do as a human being to make it to heaven. They pull from the verses and they say, Jesus said this, Jesus said we must do that, and um, therefore you have to comply. But try and understand the context of what he was saying. You can start to do this by listening to the frequency in which Jesus uses the phrase, it has been said or it has been written, and then he adds, but I say. 
okay? Jesus says, it has been said, or it has been written, and then he adds, but I say, okay? So in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus states, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But in Matthew 5, 22, Jesus says, but I say unto you that whatsoever, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. In verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then in verse 28, he adds, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. In verse 31, he states, it has been said that whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. The next verse, but I say unto you, that whomsoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Go to verse 33. Here Jesus says that in the old times it was said, you shouldn't forswear yourself. But then in verse 34 through 37, he adds, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Swear not at all, neither, uh, excuse me, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair black or white. Then he adds something that few on earth ever follow, saying, But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. Are you convicted by reading these things? Are your communications only yea, yea, and nay, nay? And does everything else come of evil? How about in your mind? Do you see how evil you are in that way relative to God? Then in Matthew 5, 39, he adds, but I say unto you, uh, wait a minute. He says in verse 38, you have heard it has been said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now ask yourselves, are you able to do these things? Even consistently, can you do these things? When you're at the ward basketball free-for-all, are you able to do these things? When you're in traffic, when your neighbor insults your children, are you able to resist the evil? Are your communications yes and no? Jesus finalizes this line of thought by saying in verse 43, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Then in the next verse he adds, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Then after a few more words, he adds, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. Whoa, really? Be perfect, Jesus? How can I be perfect, Lord? Why, if a woman even trips and falls in the mud in front of me, I'm thinking of jumping in there after her, Lord. How am I supposed to walk through this life and be perfect and not, and not fail to all these things that you have said? Why, if someone even drifts over in the lane I'm driving in on the freeway, I lose my, my Christianity, Lord. How can I do it? 
And Lord, I've been divorced twice. I'm not talking about me. This is rhetorical. I've been divorced twice. I guess I'm, I'm an adulterer and bound for hell. Is that right, Lord? According to what you say here in Matthew, yes. In many ways, the LDS have people believe that it is up to them to meet these requirements in their flesh or to do their very best throughout their lives to try as hard as they can to get it all lined up and then they will prove themselves worthy for the kingdom of heaven. What a lie. After this teaching on the Mount and later on in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus throws down on how difficult it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And after hearing all this, his disciples turn to him and they ask him a question. Who can be saved then? Who then can be saved? They had heard all these things. And finally, Jesus is able to get them to understand the point. It is here he's able to teach them the point of it all. And he says, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was trying to get the people to see that to reach heaven or a state of perfection by their own power, operating by the flesh of their will, it was impossible for men. The command to be perfect is certain, but how does a person become perfect when they, in order to return to God? Listen very closely to this. The only way to live with God after this life, listen closely, is to die as righteous as God is. Um, God will never abide or abode with anybody who is not as righteous as he is, because that is shadow, that is dark. So the question is, by what means does a person become as righteous as God is? Well, I can tell you how it won't happen. It won't be through their efforts, their works, or their attempts at obedience to establish their own righteousness. No, with man it is impossible. With God, with Jesus, by faith in him and his righteousness and his works and his shed blood, you will die and be as righteous as God. It's because of Jesus's perfection and his righteousness that you're made that way. All right? Take a minute, watch this spot. When we come back, we'll check out some of your emails.
Last week, I introduced to you the uh, email we received from a guy named Blake, 49 questions. Blake is not a believer, he's an atheist. And I said we would cover one of his questions per week. This is question number nine. Why can't the all-powerful God not forgive someone in their sins after they die? Here is where he gives an example, and this is where it shows the errant uh, thinking of an atheist and even of a Latter-day Saint. He says, example, a Christian man that is seemingly on God's good list makes a stupid decision and, is, and decides to drink a little too much at the fish fry. On his way home, he crashes into a minivan, killing a mother and her two children and himself. This man led a very faithful life and made one stupid yet grave mistake. If this man did not ask for forgiveness of his sins just before the electrical activity of his brain ceased, then God will judge and send him to hell for all eternity. What Blake does not understand is that it was not this man's righteousness or his life of righteousness that saved him. His life of righteousness was merely a byproduct of him having been saved already. If at the fish fry he had a little bit too much to drink, and if he got in his car stupidly and did something like that, it's very unfortunate, part of this fallen world, but his salvation is not predicated on the fact that he got drunk at the fish fry and killed people on the way home, hard as it is for, to, for people to understand that. His salvation is predicated on his faith in Jesus coming and righteously doing what he could not do, Blake. So you understand you are approaching many of your questions from a religious point of view, not from a relationship point of view. And that's the difference between your questions and someone who's really seeking for truth. Last week, my wife Mary was running uh, on a Sunday, and without knowing it, she happened to coincide with the releasing of the stake conference in, which she, in the ward and stake which she grew up in. So she's out there running and all the people, friends, are coming out of the church witnessing her in this state. She texted how awkward this situation was, all of her old friends passing by in the car and staring at her as she ran along. She reflected upon this event and told us that her heart really goes out to the people in the state of Utah. She was able to see for the first time what it's like to live here that it's not just those rare occasions where in Southern California where somebody of your ward or stake might see you, you know, in the store on Sunday, but you guys live in a constant fishbowl. If you turn from Mormonism, everybody in your ward is looking at you at the grocery store. They're looking at your kids when you take them to school. You are constantly under this pressure and she realized for the first time experiencing that what you're under here. So we want you to know that our prayers are out there for all people who are LDS and trying to come out because of family pressures and job pressures. But they are specifically and heavily for people in this state because you face difficulties that are unfathomable uh, to people who live outside of it. All we, can say, all we can say is God is greater and we have to trust in him. Uh, this is from someone who watched the interview I did with John Dellen on mormonstories.org. And she says, I was shocked to hear you say in this interview that a person doesn't need to know the name of Jesus to be saved and other statements. Let me address this. First of all, it is perfectly understood. It should be that there is no other way to God than, than Jesus Christ. No other name by which anybody could ever be saved. That was never my point, and I think that was clear. 
But the question was, what happens to an infant who doesn't know the name Jesus? What happens to the aborigine of, 19, or of 1820 or of 1930 who uh, acquiesces to the idea that there is a power greater uh, than him but doesn't know the name Jesus? That was the context of why I said what I said. And in that context, the name of Jesus, Jesus, does not need to be known by those people for them to be recipients of God's grace. The reasons I give behind that are a couple. One, Jesus is God. So when an aborigine acquiesces to the, to the, what the manifestations of God around him in nature, God takes that into account. He's a just and fair God. He's a merciful God. And he's going to take all that into account. Will it be Jesus' blood that saves the aborigine? Absolutely. And the aborigine will understand that when they are saved. But until that point in time, that name of Jesus, which is not even his name, was never known by them. His name, of course, is Yeshua. His name is Joshua. And, and the Greeks call him Jesus. So the name Jesus, an Anglicanized name of a Greek word that is interpreted of a Hebrew word, is not necessary. It is what a person does with the information they've been given. Do they say, I accept this as from God, I want to know you more, or do they reject it? That's what I meant by that uh, to the writer whose name is Nancy Zelznick. Finally, before we go to our message, uh, and I'm going to make an announcement here. Jim uh, writes, there is a lot of good information out there. In fact, I'm not going to cover this one. I'll cover it later when we go to the phones. Let me tell you something about the phones uh, right now. For five years, we have taken your calls. And we've opened it up, and some people will say on blogs, well, they screen the calls and they get rid of LDS callers who have hard things to say. That is not the truth. We have let anybody who is LDS get through on these lines, unless they are repeat callers, especially if they're boring repeat callers. But if they're LDS, they come through carte blanche first ones. That's still the invitation. Call and try to get through. Um, we are going to be far more strict in trying to get through to people who have real questions and have real statements. We are going to cut down on the calls. I have plenty of material that we can read from and learn from just from emails alone that we don't need to do the calls. We probably never really have. So the calls are kind of like a, a icing on the cake. And if the icing's not gonna be there, we're gonna eat cake without icing. So if you have a call and you have a comment or question, be concise. Our operators are gonna say, we wanna hear what you're gonna say. And then we will take that call. If we get one call that's worthy, we'll take it. If we get 20, we'll take them. But that's how it's gonna go from this point forward. And with that, let's have a prayer. God of heaven, we need you so much. I, I need you now as we uh, proceed through and talk. And uh, as people call in and the material we cover that you will guide us and you will help us to think and ponder and question and seek you with all of our hearts, Lord. We pray for our audiences, our volunteers, all the technical issues in Jesus' name, amen. All right, <coughs> because I've been on television here for nearly five years straight, missed one week, uh, I am often recognized uh, when I'm out in public, even if I'm not approached. In time, you sort of develop an ability to see when people recognize you and there's certain signs they give and you're able to kind of discern whether they're a friend or a foe before they even reach you. 
Most of you know I fly out of California every week, out to California every week. And on this recent flight last week, I got on a, on a plane where more people than not in the front part of the plane recognized me. How could I tell? Human beings sort of do the same thing when they see something, but they don't want to let you know that they see it. Uh, there's, a, there's always this one. Okay, I, I see that a lot. And then there's the, the head bow, which the couple will bow down, they'll talk, then they come up and look. And then they, so there, there's that one. And then, of course, there's my favorite. It's the glance, turn the head away and go. I, I get that one a lot, too. Well, as I got to my seat on the plane this week uh, and passed through the gauntlet of LDS people giving me those looks, um, and how did I know they're LDS? That is, a, that is a big LDS family flight that I take. They were going to Disneyland. I came to my seat, and there was an empty space between a woman sitting at the window, and I was at the aisle. She was from West Jordan, and we began to talk. She asked me what I do, and I told her I was a pastor and that I come out to Utah weekly to both teach and to do a television program. She didn't, she just, when I said that, she said, oh, cool. I noticed that when I said this, some of the people in the seats around sort of perked up. They wanted to hear what was going on here as we talked. The young woman, whose name I don't recall, told me about her life and her husband and her job, and then the flight was underway. I fell asleep. And when I woke, she asked if she could slip by me so that she could go use the restroom. And when she passed by, I could see the LDS garments coming out between her shirt and her, uh, the top of her pants. And so when she started to come back, I made the decision that I was going to spend the next 45 minutes interviewing this faithful, intelligent LDS woman about Mormonism and what she knew. Now, Remember, she had no idea who I was. Because of this, I purposely couched my questions in ways that would not reveal my knowledge of her church. Now, this might disturb some of you, but if I didn't approach her this way, I never would have received the open, honest communications that I did. So I asked, did you get married in the, in the church? And she said, no, in the temple. And I said, why did you do that? Just, you know, and she said, well, holy innocently, holy from the textbook, uh, as a true believing Mormon, she said, we believe that families are forever and we marry in the temple so that our marriages can last beyond this life. I mean, it was just like a quote from, from the missionary discussions. And uh, I said, is that what temples are for then? Is it marriages? And she said, no, uh, there are many other things that we do in the temple. And I said, like what? And she proceeded to explain that there are things that LDS people need and other people need in order to follow God's commandments and that not everybody gets to do them when they're alive. So the LDS go into the temple and they perform these things for them. She tried to name those things and she included baptism and marriage and sealings. And then she said the endowment. And she said, and that's really important, that one, the endowment. And for people, she said, who have passed on. Now, she was really careful to phrase everything she said in the most highly non-offensive language uh, I've ever heard. For instance, instead of saying the line, for people who are dead, she would say, uh, and, or like in baptisms for the dead, she would say, for people who have passed on. You know, it was very, very gentle. And I asked, well, where did all these things in that temple come from? And 
she kind of was uncertain. She paused. And then seconds went by and I was feeling bad. So I kind of helped her out. And I said, I mean, are they from the same temple that was around when Jesus was alive? And she brightened up excitedly and she said, yes, yes. And after the savior died, well, it was all sort of lost. And then a prophet named Joseph Smith came along and he restored it all back to the earth. And I could see and sense that some of the people around me were growing very uneasy. They, they didn't really like how she was answering to, to me, and they, I think they wanted her to stop. I'm, I'm, I, I just sensed some, some of them wanted to jump up and say, He is the devil! This is the incubus! Do not speak! Silence! You know, I just sensed this oppressive feeling, but she's just long, you know, going on and explaining it. But everyone remained in their seats, timid. Uh, fearful of somebody that had facts. So I said, you know, I'm a pastor, and in the Bible, Jesus says that we are not married nor given in marriage, but we're as the angels after this life. What does that mean to Mormon people when they say then that you will be married for eternity? And she paused. She said, I really don't know. I, I mean, I've never heard of that scripture before. And like I made it up and I said, well, it's okay. I said, and we moved on. We discussed a number of other LES issues and I was waiting for, I was really just kind of using this to see the Lord to, instead of me using all the, the techniques and methods I've established, just Lord help me to see what I should say and what I should do. So I'm not going to talk about everything we did, but all of her responses were couched in what she had been taught in Sunday school or maybe what she heard in seminary or from uh, talks at sacrament meeting. And um, then I asked about the difference between the temple and the church. And I explained, she explained that. She said, anybody can come to church. All people are welcome to come to church. But only those people who are worthy can enter into the temple. So at last I thought, now we've got something to start talking about. And so uh, tell me, I said, what do you have to do to be considered worthy to enter into the temple? And she, innocently, as if she was reciting a recipe for caramel corn, she got, you know, kind of excited. She said, well, you know, uh, and she started listing all the ingredients. I mean, you almost had to just love her for her exuberance of, I got a question, I've got an answer. She says, well, we have to obey the law of chastity. Okay, that's that one. And then we have to obey that uh, word of wisdom and we have to obey the uh, tithing, law of tithing and we have to obey the Sabbath day and we have to obey uh, a couple other things. And I said, wait a minute, go back for a second. Let's talk about the Sabbath day. Tell me about that. And she said, well, we're supposed to obey that. And I said, is that why downtown Salt Lake City is so empty on Sundays? And she said, yes. Very, very proud of her faith. Yes, it is. And so um, uh, I took a minute to point out, just kind of offhandedly, that the Sabbath day is an Old Testament construct, and it was an agreement between the children of Israel and God, and that, you know, to Christians, she said, well, we're Christian. I said, well, to me, Jesus said, come unto me, and I will give you rest every hour, every day of the week, not a specific day of the week, but every day. And plus, you know, I said in the Old Testament, if you broke the Sabbath day, they would stone you. They would kill you. And, and so I continued. I say, so to you, Sunday uh, is your Sabbath, not Saturday, which I explained was in the Bible. And I said, what happens to a person who breaks the Sabbath day? And she smiled and she said, well, we don't stone them, that's for sure. And we had a good old laugh together. <laughs> and then I said, but... Can you go into the temple if you break the Sabbath day? 
And she said, oh yeah. She said, we're not all about strict rules and stuff. Everybody has free agency. So it's not that big of a deal. I see, I said, so then why all the focus on being worthy to go into the temple if everything is sort of up to you as to whether it's right or not? I mean, why go through the interview and everything if everything is just okay? Just to let you know, I was speaking to her from the biblical premise that people are either worthy by perfect working obedience to the law of God or they are worthy by grace through faith on the blood of Christ and never a combination of works and grace. In other words, if the LDS temple were really the house of God, let's just pretend it is, and personal worthiness was demanded to enter into it, according to the Bible, it could only come about in one of two ways. It could come about by perfect obedience to the law of God, or, which is impossible, or it would come through the grace of God, which would make all the interviews for worthiness obsolete. She went on to explain that everything is really based on how often a person does it. And, and if it's really wrong in their heart when they do. If whatever the sin is becomes a problem, then they have to go to their bishop, confess it, and he can work out whether they can go to the temple or not. This explanation of hers led me to ask another line. So have you ever broken the Sabbath day? She seems to have forgotten that just minutes earlier she expressed how important it was to obey the Sabbath day to be worthy when she answered. She said, oh yeah, I break it all the time. And, and she said it with a smile. And I said, well, how? She said, oh, I go shopping and I like to shop and I go shopping sometimes, you know, stuff like that. I see. I said, so did you go and confess to the bishop that you broke the Sabbath day? No, I only break it every now and then. And it's not an every type week thing. So I wouldn't need to go see the bishop about that. I said, oh, okay, I think I'm getting it. I said, so let's say this weekend you go out and you decide, oh, let's say to have a drink of alcohol. Let's say a nice big fat glass of bourbon and Coke. And you have, do you have to confess this to the bishop uh, before you can go into the temple? Well, there's a long silence. See, see, to obeying the Sabbath day to her was arbitrary to her personal worthiness. But to her to drink alcohol, or maybe it was the Diet Coke or the Coke, seemed to push her too far into the murkier levels of sin. Well, if it was just one time, she sort of stammered, I think, I think if it was one time, you'd be okay. But if you did it a lot, then you would need to go in so that you could be worthy to go into the temple. I said, okay, then how about twice a year? Could you go on your birthday and drink the bourbon? And could you go on Christmas and drink the bourbon? Do you have to tell them then? You said one, you think you Well, then that's a habit. And so then I think that maybe you would need to, and she began to get a little blurry and I could sense the beginning of her to withdraw back into a protective shell. I wasn't probing like I am here. I was very kind and soft-spoken and just kind of going along with it. But she then said, I'm not a scriptorian like you are. I said, I, haven't, I hadn't even quoted scripture. I had said nothing about scripture. I simply was inquiring to her about this faith that she has based all of her life upon following and about the logic of it relative to God's holiness. You know, she just said, there's some, some things that just aren't as big a deal as others. And, and I just said, well, I imagine there are some people who try to obey all those rules. And I would imagine there are some people who don't care about any of them. She said, that's true. 
And I said, finally, so what happens to somebody who doesn't go into the temple, you know? Either they're not worthy or they just don't want to. And she says, well, everyone goes to heaven. And that sent us on a, on a track of how everyone goes to heaven. And how you have to go into the temple if you want to go to the highest degree, but everybody's going to go to a place that's just wonderful, whether they want to go in there or not, no matter what they do, no matter who they are. She mentioned nothing about outer darkness. And we went through and we talked about that, and I've got pages because I sit down and I write this stuff after I experience it. I wrote this when we did it, and pages and pages and pages. And we talked about polygamy, and she said, it is nothing to do, nothing to do with our church today. Nobody in our church practices polygamy. We haven't done that ever. Nobody wanted to when it was practiced. They did it because they were kind of had to because there was too many women instead of men. And once it was over, it was done. I didn't have the heart right then to tell her that it's still in their Doctrine and Covenants section 132, nor did I have the heart to tell her that three of her living apostles today are practicing polygamous, meaning they have been sealed for time and all eternity to more than one woman. The Lord didn't want me to tell her all this. And we ended amicably. It broke my heart when she said, uh, as the plane landed, as long as you do everything that you can do, you're going to be okay. And then she stood up and she started to go through to get out of the plane. She turned around in front of all the LDS people with their families and she said, hey, what, what channel are you on? And I said, I'm on channel 20, Tuesday nights from 8 to 9 p.m. And I could see, I could just sense the black murder coming out on that plane for me. And she said, okay. And I want her to know if she's watching tonight that you need to investigate the faith that you claim to, to really embrace and believe. Because I would have to tell you, lady whose name I don't know, almost all of the things you recited were only half-truths. And many of the things you, re uh, you recited are absolutely not biblical. You're following the religion of a man, of men. You're following a religion that teaches opposite of what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. And so I warn you about that and go out to you with that. Uh, we have phone calls, and I guess they're all good, so we're going to take it. Cecilia in Palmdale, California. She's on line two. Cecilia, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm so glad I got you on, on, uh, on the phone. I just wanted to ask you if, um, if you ever had a high priest from the other church confronted you. <coughs> a high priest, yes. I've, I've yeah, talked, a high priest. Besides John O'Fallon. Yes, I've talked to many uh, high priests uh, uh, over the course of the years, out in the public and through emails and things. Yes. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Did what, you ever what? come to an agreement? Did they ever say, um, well, we're wrong and uh, we want to confess? Nothing like that? No. But, you know, your question's interesting because within, just for those who don't know, within the Mormon hierarchy, the deacons are like 12 years old, the teachers are 14, the priests are 16 to 18, and then they become uh, Melchizedek priesthood holders, they become elders, and then from an elder, that's where all the, most of the men are who are young, and then you become a high priest as you begin uh, older and more mature in your age. And I have found, Cecilia, that high priests are just resigned to being members of the church that most of them are not as full of fire and brimstone for the church as they were when they were elders. They've seen too much. And they have more questions to me or that are like, you know, I don't buy it anymore, but I'm stuck. My family's in it. What do I do? I see. I yeah. see. Well, um, I just wanted to express, you know, how um, 
it's, it feels so wonderful every time I hear an LDS coming out of the church and, and um, having a true relationship with Christ. That really brings me joy. And so really quick, because I know you don't have that much time, I want to pray really quick for you. Would you allow me to do that? Sure. Okay. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. I thank you for Sean. Father, you give him the strength. You give him what he needs, Lord, for this program to go on, Lord. So the other uh, LDS people that don't have a true relationship with Christ, that they will come to know you, Lord, personally, intimately, Lord. Lord, I thank you for Sean and his family and everything, Lord, that's around him, all the people that support him. Father, I leave this prayers in your highest throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, okay. Cecilia. I really appreciate it. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, first of all, is Ron from Palmdale, first-time caller, and Max from West Valley, first-time caller, line three. Max, you're on Heart of the Matter. Max. Oh, Sean? Hey, you're on the air. Hey, uh, good show tonight. Thanks, ma'am. Hey, I'm from West Valley, and I, I wanted to ask you, why aren't there any crosses on the Mormon churches? Well, it's, it kind of started in Utah. They didn't have anything against the cross per se, except doctrinally, it's really not focused on. But when they came out to Utah and Brigham Young started selling, settling Utah and the Catholic Church came in, the Catholic Church's focus on the crucifix caused them to say no more crosses for us. And so it was almost as much a cultural thing as it is a doctrinal thing. Now, that being said, they do not look to the cross as a good thing. They, they, they will admit that it is something that was necessary but they look to the resurrection as the thing that is of utmost importance. Well, it's all combined, you know. A Christian's going to say the resurrection's vital, the cross was vital, his birth was vital, the whole thing. But they like to pick and choose, and, and it separates them from the rest of the body of Christ. So that's why they don't have the crosses. Does that help? Yes, it does. Praise God. Thanks for calling. You bet. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to look at the front of the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, let's see if you can focus in on this right here. Who do you think these two guys are right here? Hmm. Well, they're LDS, I know. And it says it's possible that in the 2012 races, we're going to have two men who are LDS. One's Huntsman, and one is a guy named Mitt Romney. Now, the question is, what do Christians around the world do when they are, and I'm not making a stance on who they are. I can't do that. But what do you do when you're, when you're faced with uh, political parties and one's LDS and one is uh, the, the, one, the one who's uh, in office today, Obama? What do you do? I'm just throwing that out to you and to say, think about this. Because, you know, we, we do a show about how powerful and wealthy and controlling they are. And then I would bet a large majority of Christians would say, well, we're going with the LDS instead of Obama. Now, I'm not for anybody. In fact, I'm not going to even vote. But I'm just telling you, what do you do? Start thinking about that. Another thing we're going to cover next week coming up, you see right here, it says Sealed Fate. Who this is, this is Hiram Smith's great-great-granddaughter, and that's his great-great-grandson. And this guy says he found, he, retran he translated the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Now, this woman was a very faithful Latter-day Saint for years. She's friends with Jeffrey Holland and all these LDS uppity-ups. And guess what? The Spirit told her this guy's book is true. So she's completely left Mormonism to follow after this guy who calls himself a prophet. And he's revealed the, the, the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. We're going to cover what this story is about. And it's going to amaze you about what tools this woman used to discern whether this book was true or not. 
question in LDS history. They say Adam is God. So where did Adam come from? Who created him? Uh, Adam God theory, not going to cover it. It's a good question, though. Uh, I want to cover something now, which is going to bring up some hackles, but we're going to cover it anyway. My mentor in the Christian faith is a man named Chuck Smith. He, he has um, devoted his life to teaching the Word of God uh, with sound hermeneutics and great exegetical uh, exposition from the pulpit. Uh, I, I talk with Chuck Smith. I've met with Chuck Smith. I've sat at his so-called feet learning the Bible from Chuck Smith. And today, on his radio program, he's in his 80s, a woman called faithful Christian, um, husband Christian, have a child, and she was very upset. And she called and said, Pastor Chuck, I've got a very tough question. I just got back from the doctor. It's intimated that this is very, very early in a pregnancy. And the doctor told her that she has conjoined twins, that they have one body but two heads. And the doctor said the chance of survival in the womb is going to be very, very slim. If the child uh, reaches maturity to be born, it will die within the first day. The woman was horribly upset. She was asking Pastor Chuck, what do you do? Now, let me, before I answer and give you Chuck's uh, uh, advice, let me say that I don't know a Christian alive who thinks that abortion is of God or, or abortion is good or abortion is a solution to unwanted pregnancies. But I do think that Chuck used some reason in his answer. And he said, you know, it's very hard to prescribe abortion and it's difficult to, to say that that's something anyone should ever do. However, I'm not sure in this case the Lord would condemn you. Now that's for a separate show. But the thing that is really troubling is how the Christians eat their young or their old, so to speak. Because they came out in full force, people who have benefited from the teachings of Chuck Smith for decades and decades, and they have essentially tried to crucify this man and tell him that he is wrong. And who's done it? Operation Rescue uh, people and the people who have made abortion the thing that they are focused on in this world of Christianity today, and not the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was Chuck Smith's advice incorrect? I don't know. I give him the liberty to make mistakes. He's a man. Just like I make mistakes and everybody makes mistakes. If it was, what, do Christi what are Christians supposed to do? You're supposed to give a call to Chuck and say, hey, could we sit down and talk about this? But instead, what do we do today? We go out into the public and we publicly uh, put our dirty laundry up and we attack people within the body because they say something that we don't agree with. I'm telling you, we have to be prepared for it because there's going to be a bifurcation within the body. It talks about it in Revelation. It talks about the, the church of Laodicea. It's lukewarm. And the more we become focused on these social issues, the, the more divided we are going to be. We need to focus on the cross of Christ. We need to share Jesus as the solution and have patience and long suffering to people when they are trying to help others who are within the church. Okay, next question. Oh, and, and the one person wanted. One, two, maybe three. Well, that's all right. They are welcome to opinion. That's fine. Just like I'm welcome to mine. But the question is, do you now go and get on a blog and say, that, that, 
dew-haired Sean McCraney, do you know what he said? And bring the laundry out for the world to say, why would I want to be part of the body of Christ? Look at what these guys, they cannibalize off each other. Where's the love? Where is the support for people? Where's the concern and the brotherly kindness? And go to your brother if he has aught with you. I mean, we're losing it in this world. So I just want to stand up for, for Chuck and say, hey, whatever the motive was, if you think that was right, you know, you think it's right. If it was a mistake, it was a mistake. But I stand behind you as a brother. And I think other people would do the same. All right. Question three, is Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible an actual translation or just Joseph Smith's interpretation? The JST, Joseph Smith took the Bible. He read a verse and he said, let's change that. The inspiration of the Lord is telling me, let's add this in. They added verses. They took verses out. There was never manuscript study. He didn't know languages. There was no referencing old uh, materials, anything like that. He simply did things the way he wanted to do it, which is the way he set up the entire uh, faith. So that's how that happened. Okay, I got an email here I want to read. This was written in uh, at talking about, I guess BYU has a really good basketball player named Jimmer Fredette. And this was written at www.universe.byu.edu backslash node or forward slash node. And it says from somebody uh, who is LDS, most of Cougar Nation has another reason to root for Fredette's ever increasing success. He has done it all as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If there's one thing we Mormons love, it's a famous Mormon. At least part of the Mormon community's support for Mitt Romney, Stephanie Meyer, Steve Young, Fredette, and others is because their place in history legitimizes our religion and culture. We can prove to the world that if a Mormon can run for president, write a best-selling novel, win a Super Bowl, and we hope take a college basketball team to the Final Four, the world shouldn't consider us weird anymore, end quote. This is how they think. It's an inside view. There's a person on a website who responded to this saying, I've realized that there is literally nothing that does not support the truth of the church in the mind of a true believing Mormon. Seriously. If things go well, the church is true. If things go badly, the persecution and trials mean the church is true. When information supports the church position, the church is true. When information debunks the church position, it shows that Satan is trying to destroy the church, which means the church is true. When an accomplished person is a member of the church, the church is true. When an accomplished person refuses to join, their Satan-inspired pride is evident, which says the church is true. When a loved one recovers from an illness, the church is true. When a loved one dies in a tragic accident, it shows that the Lord tries his people, which means the church is true. When society struggles, it shows that they're doing it wrong, which means the church is true. When society thrives, it's because God props it up so the church will have a safe place to exist and grow, which means the church is true. When porn was profitable enough to sell in the Marriott's, it meant that Marriott was a savvy businessman who was loyal to his stockholders and the profit motive of business, which means the church is true. When porn stopped making money and Mitt was about to run for uh, president and Marriott pulled the plug on porn, Marriott is a righteous and courageous cr crusader for righteousness, which proves the church is true. When Joseph Smith gets in every skirt in town, it shows 
it shows how mysterious the Mormon God is and how noble Joseph was to courageously follow such seemingly naughty commands, which proves the church is true. Um, when a religious leader other than a Mormon does something everyone to everyone that moves, it shows that God isn't with them. It means the church is true. When a Mormon does something good, it means the church is true. When a Mormon does something bad, it shows how quickly um, people fall to evil when they don't obey, and that shows the church is true. If kids stay faithful, it means the church is true. If kids fall away, it proves that Satan is fighting the church and that the church is therefore true. If Jimmer is caught doing something to a crack whore next week and thrown off the team in disgrace, it will mean the church is true. Look what happened when they found out he violated the honor code. The church can't lose in the true believing Mormon mind. Any fact or event, the church is true. It's a brilliant system in communication. Uh, we have uh, all lines busy, operators going through and clearing them. Where did the name Latter-day Saints come from? Uh, church was originally called Church of Christ. Then I believe, could be wrong, the Church of Jesus Christ. And then it, or Church of the Latter-day Saints. And then later on down the road, it would kind of like everything else, doctrine of deity, doctrine of this, doctrine of that. It all kind of morphed and formulated, first vision, morphed and formulated until they came up with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. Got another one. This is from Dreidel. I know the Mormon church isn't true. And I've known this for about a year now. My entire neighborhood is Mormon. Every single friend I have is a Mormon. My cousins all live in the same ward as me. Almost everyone would figure out if I left the church. And I know that they would lay guilt trips on me, put me down, exclude me, and maybe even hate me and look down on me for my decision to leave the church. I really want to be done with all this church stuff. I hate going to the Mormon church, and yet when I attend the Christian church, I'm totally interested. I uppercase letters, don't know what to do, exclamation point. I hate going, and I hate how my parents make me pay tithing and make me go to scouts and meetings and all this stuff with callings. I don't want them all to get mad at me and put me down for this decision, and I don't know how I can do this with absolutely no one to back me up or to support me. What should I do? Should I wait till I'm 18 and just diss this church, or should I leave now at the age of 15 and be done with it? I really don't know how to tell my parents about the mission. Sigh. Uh, why do they have to be so involved in my life? But there are men, but they, they are yet men, uh, what am I going to do? Uh, we had a caller last week ask the same question. He was a little older than you. And the first thing I would suggest you do is you go to the Lord and read the word, take your Bible and sneak and read that Bible or not even sneak, read it and uh, uh, start with the gospel of John and pray for God to give you wisdom and give you help. Contact us again. We're going to try to find people in your community. If you can tell us where you live, we'll try to find people through our liaisons who can meet with you and talk with you and help you understand the differences. But you have to honor your parents. Uh, you know, the LDS missionaries, they do a little game out in the mission field. They meet somebody who's underage and they teach them secretly and they give them all the discussions and they influence them. And then they say, uh, we're having a little emergency in the audience right now. So, uh, so, so please bear with us. But um, 
there are people, uh, the LDS missionaries will teach anybody to try to sway them uh, secretly behind their parents' back. I know this. I've done this when I was a missionary, but that's not our call. Our call is to trust the Lord God with everything. Um, so with that, let's read another email and keep going on. Joe asks, uh, says he's joined the church and he wants to know what he should do. He wants to get out, but it does, does he really need to take his name off the records of the church? Uh, you don't have to, Joe, but by doing it, you shoot an, uh, uh, a cannonball over the deck of the Mormon church and you say, you better change some things or uh, you're going to have more of these. It also causes them to reflect upon their doctrines reflect upon their practices, and keep them busy getting people out. And it makes them talk, and it makes them think. So there you go. Joey uh, gave us a scenario. Joey says this. You swim across the river. Uh, the, salvation, is the, uh, salvation is the key, okay? And salvation is earned by swimming across the river, Joey says. So to the LDS, they say you swim across the river, but you cannot get close enough to the bank to pull yourself out. Your Jesus takes a long stick and says, grab onto it. And he says, kick with all your might and I'll pull while you kick to get you across the river. And, and he pulls you onto the bank and you say, thanks. But Jesus says, you never would have made it if you didn't kick. To the Christian, this is how it works. I cannot swim well at all. And I sink to the bottom and uh, drown to death. My Jesus then jumps in and grabs me and swims through the strong current, holding my lifeless body, never forsaking me. He lifts me out of the water, pulls me onto the bank, gives me mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, making me alive again solely on his work of his love and his grace. All my life I have offended Jesus daily in sin, but I am shocked that he out of love for me graciously dove in and pulled me out. There summarizes the differences between the Christian belief in Jesus and what he done, has done for us and the LDS view of Jesus and what he's done for us. Dave in South Ogden, first time caller, call next week. We're only uh, 15 minutes left, 15 seconds left. Finally, Brian asked, does someone who seeks after Christ and his grace also have to accept the Bible as literal and inerrant in order to be saved. Somebody who uh, needs to be saved does not need to accept the Bible as, little, uh, as literal or inerrant in order to be saved. Somebody who has been saved will take the Bible literally, consider it infallible. That's the order. So to be saved, you're not going to know. After you're saved, you will see the Bible for what it is, God's true word. It's been a wild show. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. I'm going to break my rusty cage and run. Break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage.